Hello, welcome to the Magic Musicals and Theatre Podcast. I'm Alice Arnold, and this week I'm speaking to the two stars of Death of a Salesman, Wendell Pierce and Sharon D. Clarke, about their incredible performances and about their careers. Welcome to the Magic Musicals and Theatre Podcast. Last week's edition of the podcast, um, we had a very jolly time with the cast of Anne Juliet. <laughs> this week, we have a, a contrasting production, <laughs> which but is... it will be as jolly. It will be just as jolly. Uh, we're going to talk about Death of a Salesman, the Arthur Miller classic, yes. with the star of the show to start with, Wendell Pierce. Now, uh, I was there on the first night of oh, Death fantastic. of a Salesman. Thanks um, for coming. And it was extraordinary. We all got up from our seats and we just went, well, that's the Olivier Award sorted for this year. Oh, right. So, well, no, it was a stunning performance. Thank you very much. Absolutely Thank you very much. stunning. It is uh, one of the great challenges of my life, not just in theatre, but just uh, one of the great challenges of my life. And uh, it's, it's such an honour to be here in London and making my West End debut and my London debut with this play. Well, the thing that's different about this production, of course, is that the central family are black. Yes. And that, it fits really well, I think, with the, it's not like it has to be shoehorned in. Uh, it's not, just the, the absolutely. It's, uh, it's, uh, it's an interpretation, uh, first of all, generated from the Miller estate that they wanted to see the interpretation done. Uh, Rebecca Miller uh, initiated uh, the interpretation. And then also you realize that it works in concert with all the themes and conflicts of the play, it works in concert with it and not in competition with it. So it illuminates uh, all of the um, all of those things that are so well known about the play, the, the, the criticism of uh, the economic system, of the idea of the American dream, the denial of that dream to people um, for whatever particular reasons. It's just enhanced. It adds more fuel to the fire. Mm-hmm. And what I noticed, the... the there were there were so many emotions that you, that your character goes through, but yes. I think what you you feel at the beginning and it builds and builds and builds is frustration, just yes. absolute physical and emotional frustration about everything, but yes. about your son hugely. Yes. Well, what happens especially is um, you know any parent wants the great American tradition, and I guess this is uh, just a human. Uh, Conceit, which is you want the next generation to have it better than than you had it, and uh, that is so much a part of the uh, the American aesthetic and the American dream that uh, you know the next generation will um, have it better than you had it, and uh, especially so in the African American tradition, um, from generation to generation, uh, handing off uh, a legacy of empowerment that will give provide for them a, a greater life. Than, uh, than you had yourself. I mean, for this generation, and Willie Loman is a part of my father's generation. You, you know, even the World War II, um, the whole campaign in America for Black America was a double victory, the double V campaign: victory abroad and victory at home. You know, we will fight the foreign wars, and because we will come home, and then we will fight for victory here, for equality, and for. Uh, um, for inclusion as fully realized American citizens. And um, that is just so uh, prevalent in what Willie is trying to provide for Biff, in addition to 
um, his own failures and his inadequacies that uh, he wants to live vicariously through Biff and hopefully that will validate and give some purpose to his life. And that passing on of the American dream, was that something your parents were passed, tried to pass on to you in the same way, really? Yes. Um, my parents were uh, very, very acutely aware that the American dream is, uh, has to be defined differently. Um, that um, don't buy into uh, uh, some sort of materialistic wealth, but understand that there's value in uh, living a purposeful life. And then also my parents uh, prepared me for uh, the, the yin and yang of that, you know, while there's the American dream, there's the American nightmare. There are those who do not have your best interest at heart. Don't try to understand them. It would, it would be a, um, uh, a, a false pursuit to try to come to an understanding of that ugly side of humanity, but realize that it is there. Prepare yourself for that. Be ready for that. And once you identify it, immediately give no energy to that purpose, to that person, to that institution, whatever. You, they have now identified themselves as someone who does not have your best interest at heart. One less person, place, or institution you have to worry about because you have a pursuit of a purposeful life and understand that. Uh, and that, that duality is something that uh, you have to understand about America, you know, for the African-American. They have to understand there's two Americas, you know, there is that which is on paper, which is what we, the ideal that you all strive for. And then there's the execution of it um, and understanding that there's an ugly part of human nature that will always try to deny what is written on uh, paper, that constitution, that ideal, um, they feel as though that ideal is not for you. And so uh, there's a duality about it. Langston Hughes called it, uh, had, a, had a poem about it, um, you know, the two Americas, you know. Um, and so, but at the same time, my, mother, my father's greatest saying was, you can't get lost in America. It was literal. We used to take summer trips in the car. <laughs> And, you know, he'd give us the map and say, you can't get lost in America, let's go. <laughs> and then also it is, um, is uh, prophetically this idea that what America provides is an opportunity that you cannot lose who you are. It provides you a way. There were people who will try to impede you. There were things that will try to impede you. But you cannot get lost in America. You have an opportunity to do whatever you want to do. And you saw, I mean, I heard your Desert Island Disc, which was absolutely fantastic no, thank you. program. Thank you very much. Um, and you talk so movingly about taking your parents back to their home yes. after Hurricane Katrina had destroyed it. Right. And just what a moving story that was. That was, uh, that was um, well, you know, my life is kind of defined uh, pre-Katrina and post-Katrina. You know, that was a time that that neighborhood meant everything to us because out of the ugliness of segregation was created Pontchartrain Park, this idyllic sort of uh, small Mayberry-like town. Out of something ugly, separate but equal, we'll put blacks here, you know, or whites over here, you know, with equal access, um, which was a compromise to uh, the civil rights 
advocacy that we were pushing for at the time. Uh, but out of that, my parents' generation, the Moses generation, gave us, the Joshua generation, um, something idyllic, and it became an incubator for talent uh, in all sort of uh, mediums, you know, business and politics and art and um, all the different disciplines. And it was completely destroyed. And to get them back home was just, uh, it was a passion for me because it had to happen uh, before they died. And that was my goal. Uh, I didn't share with them, but I was like, I want them to be able to go back home before they take their last breath because they fought their entire life to provide us this. And now at the end of their lives, um, it was all destroyed. Uh, I was successful in doing that, and um, uh, my mother is gone, but my father is still there, 95 years old. Is he? Yes. Oh wow! And still in in. And in his home, I said that when you uh, he needs care around the clock. Yeah, here. yeah. Uh, and I provide that for him, but I said, you know, when they take you out of this house, it'll be for the last time. Yeah, yeah. That's but he's in his home, and that's yeah, he's in his yeah, home. That's, that's I think that's, that's actually fantastic. giving them the longevity in his life. Yeah, mm. yeah. And you split your life between New Orleans, New York, and LA. Yes. Uh, well, and now London. And now London. And yeah, London. I, I, absolutely. I, um, I am loving my stay here in London. Are you? What's your favorite thing about? Tell us your favorite thing about London. Oh, I, I, London is very diverse. So it's whatever my mood is. I'm very. I'm very. Uh, Central London Mayfair posh at times. I'm uh, I'm East Ender, uh, ragamuffin South London sometimes. Uh, late nights at Ronnie Scott's, the jazz club, which is very close to here, which uh, I can be found there most nights. Um, I, I enjoy the museums. I enjoy the theater, the tradition of the theater here. Uh, people go to the theater here the way Americans look at television, so I appreciate that. The one drawback is the fact that uh, I'm on the same schedule as most other plays, so I don't get to I see know. all the plays that I want yeah, to see. That's so the it, uh, it looks like I'm going to have to spend some time mm-hmm. here after we finish the run. Now, there's lovely use of music in this production of yes. Death of a Salesman. Music, you already have talked about going to Ronnie Scott's yes. and how important music is to you. Yeah. you, you you've got a big musical talent yourself. I, I, I wouldn't say I, I, I'm a great appreciator of music. <laughs> I wouldn't say I'm a musical talent. I grew up in New Orleans, so I, well, you I grew up. You got to appreciate, I appreciate music. Yes. Uh, music is uh, very much a, a, a presence in our life daily. We sing when we talk. Hey, how you doing? Magic radio. What's going on, baby? <laughs> I'm on Magic Radio. You know, so uh, we sing when we talk. We uh, The emulation of dialogue is what trading fours is in the jazz tradition of you solo, then I solo, and I answer, you respond. It is really an imitation of the, the human of a human conversation. Um, music is so much a part of the African-American experience, we wanted to make sure that that was a part of the play. And uh, uh, Femi uh, Timowo, who is our composer, and um, you see him in the play, he actually plays uh, Willie Loman's father, uh, who has never been seen like um, like Hedda Gobbler's father, you know, who was so ever-present. And that was another part of the play that we wanted to explore. Willie is actually a f- fatherless child, you know? He never knew his father. And the, the next substitute would be his brother Ben, and he only met him twice mm. in life. So he's orphaned. And so 
the idea of this orphaned man searching for um, the, the mythical impact of his father puts great pressure on him to be the father that he never knew to Biff. Mm -hmm. And that is what at the heart of the strain of their relationship where actually he wants Biff to live a life to validate his fatherhood of him being a good father. You know, it's really selfish on Willie's part. It's really not allowing Biff to be who he is. He's like, I need you to be something for me. And it's such a, it must be an incredibly draining performance to give every night. I yes. mean, I know as an audience, we were completely wrung out by the end of it. It is, uh, it, we're, we're recording this uh, right before. Uh, this is, um, this, I feel that now, before the play, more than anything, this this heavy load, it's where Willie is at the beginning of the play. Um, he is, uh, he is tired, he is frustrated, he is desperate, uh, he is lonely. Um, he has uh, the, the depths of insecurity and self-doubt and all of that. Um, and it's before the play that I look out and I feel that I have to climb Mount Everest. And I feel the weight of the role then. By the end of the course of the evening, strangely enough, I am oh, I'm imbued with so much joy of, from satisfaction from completing a mission of such great depth and challenge that uh, I'm energized. And then you go to Ronnie Scott's. And then I go to Ronnie Scott's, <laughs> and then I go, the, I gotta give some shout outs to some other places I go to, Jazz Market, um, <laughs> you know, yeah. go to some of the clubs, the theater clubs uh, in uh, here in the, the West End. And, uh, and then I go home and uh, I, I listen to music, I read, I watch, and I really, I've live a vampire's life and then I uh, sleep during the day in preparation for this hour. And you're going to stay in London for a while longer? Uh, yes, yes I am and I'm looking forward to this nice long run. Uh, I hope uh, everyone comes out. I hope people who've seen the play come back to the play. It is a rarity to do this iconic uh, play. This is uh, on par with Lear and, um, and Hamlet and, uh, and it happens only a revival like this uh, happens four to five years between them, and I feel as though with this interpretation, it's historic, um, that people will never get a chance to see this interpretation, especially for the first time on this level. So I, I, I'm looking forward to a nice long run and uh, having people uh, come back to the play. Well, I think we'll be seeing you, as I say, at a fair few award ceremonies coming up well, <laughs> in the spring hopefully but so. it is a, a phenomenal performance it really is um, thank you very much thank you so much for talking to us thank you for thank having you. me Yes, so now we're continuing our interview of the, the stars of Death of a Salesman and I'm <laughs> sitting next to Sharon D. Clark I've always wanted to ask you this Sharon what's the D? that's my little bit of mystery there you go. Well, seriously, you're not going to tell me. No. Crumbs, I've built myself up for that for weeks. <laughs> I don't look at Wikipedia because they've got it wrong, so it's fine. Oh, well, I haven't. That's oh. just my little bit of mystery. Oh. I might whisper it in your ear all right, later all right. on. Okay. I know it's out there somewhere, but... Oh, you know. All right. Um, anyway, <laughs> that's, that was by the by. It's nothing to do with Death of a Salesman. Um, what an extraordinary production this is. The way I saw it, really, was that you were the sort of 
the strongest character on that stage. You're saying all the right things. With, you can continue to sit where yeah, you are. <laughs> Phew. Um, <laughs> but it's like you're covering up for all the weaknesses of all the men around you. Well, she's That's... dealing with three immature men. Yes. And, you know, sometimes and I've, I've seen Death for Salesman before and also the fact that Arthur Miller didn't really write strong women. Um, I wanted to make sure that she was strong. I didn't want her to be weak and flimmy flammy and sort of like running around after these boys. I wanted her to be the strength because there isn't much in the family at the moment because the guys are all over the place. <laughs> well, she is that. She's like the rock. Good. It, it, she comes across, that as, comes across. As, as the rock. And just one question. what? How much do you think your character, Linda, knows about the affair? I think Linda that, knows. And she just... Yeah. Yeah. She's strong enough to... Yeah, she's strong enough to... like. like she can say, right, he's out on the road, he's gone for moments, well, time at a time, and, you know, he's travelling 700 miles and he's doing all of this. And she she lets that slide. As long as none of that comes into their marital home, then that's all right. Do you mm -hmm. know what I mean? It's like, you do what you've got to do out there. I know you're spending time by yourself. I know you must get lonely, so... But it's not something that she brings up. But for me, I say she knows. Okay. Because I, I think a woman would. I think most women, though, when they're part yep. of the street, and on, do you mm -hmm. know what I mean? You just have an innate sense. And I think, little yeah, I'm going to go with that. Off. Yeah, the little bell goes off. And I don't want to play her as being dumb about it. I mm -hmm. think she knows. Mm -hmm. Other people might argue with me, but there you go. And the, the it's beautifully directed by yeah. Marion Elliott and Miranda Cromwell. Had you worked with them? Neither. You hadn't? No, I hadn't no. worked with either of them. But I love the fact, again, that it was two women looking at this, um, two women coming from different aspects as well, and um, just a very strong female creative team. You know, our lighting, our sound, our designer are all female. So that was a great catch in itself, do you know what I mean, to, to work with strong women. I don't think we get enough of that in this business, and yeah, I really wanted to mm. be part of that. And at the end, Linda says, we're free. What... What do you think that means? Because you also say that, I mean, she doesn't cry <coughs> when everyone else is crying. Every, I mean, mm. every, everyone's in floods of tears, including the audience. And she doesn't. It's like she can't cry. She can't cry. She's too numb, too angry. Do you mean, the way I play Linda at the end is that she's angry at Willie for doing it. And she doesn't understand it. It's like, there is another way. And why, do you, why you chose to do it now when we're, we're at the last payment for the house. So do you know what I mean? After this payment, they don't have a mortgage, so that they don't have that kind of worry. So it's just like we could have continued with the the day-to-day -day living because we wouldn't have been that stretched. And you've done this now, and you've left me alone. Mm. Alone in this big house, which at least I don't have a mortgage now, but I'm living in this house by myself without the man that I love. And she, you know she loves him, Arthur Miller throughout the play, consistently. She, he's the dearest man in the world to me. She loves him. And she's going to miss him terribly. And mm. so she's just angry. So she doesn't cry then, but after we've gone through the song, I make her cry then. It's like that's her cathartic release. And also the fact that she sings to Willie throughout the play to calm him. Mm. And it's singing that last lullaby to him, which breaks through her hard spot at that point. And there is, there's beautiful music in yeah, this Femi, piece. Femi has done it's really, really joyous. Gorgeous. I think it's really and genius what Femi has done, because I know a lot of people here... I'm not sure what we call the song, like Trumpet Sounds. Um, a lot of people hear that and think it's a song that they've heard before, that they've heard in church and they've grown up with. And 
Femi wrote it for the show. So the fact that it feels like such a familiar piece. It does. It sounds like a sort of traditional spiritual yeah. or something, doesn't yeah. it? It doesn't sound like a new piece at all. But, of course, music, you can do that thing. I mean, it's All the cast actually sang absolutely yeah. beautifully. That was lucky, I thought, when we opened. I thought, oh, look, every single one of them's got a fantastic yeah. voice. And something, um, somebody like Matt Seed and Young, you know, you, you never hear him let rip in this show. He's got that one line at the beginning and yes. then he sings long, but... And great it's voices, it's, great it's voices. amazing. Yeah. But of course, you've done lots of musicals. You won the Olivier Award for Caroline or Change, mm-hmm. um, <laughs> and you've been um, in. Well, you've you, so many um, musicals that you that you've done. This is obviously not a musical. No, such, it's not a musical there's in music anyway. in it. It's a play with music. Yeah, but I've heard a rumor now that you're back after this run. You're off to Broadway. Yes, yes, that rumour is true. Are we allowed to talk true. about that? Yeah, yeah, yeah that, that's out You're there. You're going back open. there to do Caroline or Change on Broadway. I'm not going back there. I've never been to oh, work there. Oh, so <laughs> I'm going off to Broadway off. to do Caroline or Change, and it's it's really exciting. It's the first time I'll be working on Broadway. It's my Broadway debut. That and really I'm really, really, really looking forward Isn't to it? it. And you know, I've got mates in New York who at the moment are just going mad with themselves, going, you're coming over, it's fantastic. And... Um, New York seems really excited to have the show. I think it's, I think New Yorkers see it as the show that kind of got away from them, and there hasn't been a revival of it since it was done in I think it was two thousand and three. So they're quite excited to have the show back, and I'm quite excited to be bringing it. I bet you are yeah. to bring you to get over there. So they're doing is that an equity exchange thing or something? Yeah, I suppose someone the, from the yeah. other side will be coming yeah. over at some point. Um, now. Um, you before Caroline or Change, you were known in for Holby. Mm-hmm. You, were, you were a doctor. Did you like doing that medical? Th- were were you involved in the medical thing? Yeah, yeah, I had to do some medical yeah. things. I had to do things like attention pneumothorax, which is like when your lung collapses and they have to get a fourteen gauge cannula and put it down the intercostal space and get the air. Oh, out so you've got all, all the lingo so and everything. I've still yeah. kept some of that, but some of it was learning it parrot fashion mm-hmm. and then just repeating it to myself over and over and over, so it sounded good in my mouth. Sounded like yes. it was something that I knew to say. Um, I loved it. It was different every day. Um, you know, you, you're dealing with people with prosthetics and you're seeing blood spurt. Oh, it's quite fun, is that? I, yeah, I was it... an anaesthetist. <laughs> I was. And I rang my cousin, who's a doctor, mm. and I said, this is my line. I said, I, haven't got, I don't have a clue what any of this means. Yeah. She said, darling, look at the monitor. You're looking at a monitor mm. when you say all of that. And then there were the people under, under the table yeah. pumping the blood yeah. that was coming out. Fantastic. It's great. Fun. It's great, Joy. I loved it. I loved it. I mean, like, my first episode as Lola, I crashed through the doors on somebody's chest, pumping them as they went through the hall. And I said, oh, it was just exciting. Everybody wants yeah, to, do want to do that. that. You want to do Did that. Did you go pupils fixed and dilated? Did all, yeah, that, all, stu- of that, stuff, all of that All of that stuff. I know someone used to do that to their dog. They used to roll the dog over and then, <laughs> and then put, put pretend paddles on it and make the dog go... <laughs> no, I loved the dog it. was fine. No one took cruelty. So we're talking about a lot of really serious... Well, obviously, Death of a Salesman, very serious. You um, nearly performed, though, in the Eurovision Song Contest. Oh, wow. Was that like that a up. narrow escape, do you think? Um, probably. Or do you wish you'd done it? <laughs> well, um, what was great about that was the concept. So it was, the, as a group, we were called Six Chicks. And we ranged from about 17 years of age to about 65 so it was all different types of women, all different nationalities, sizes, ages. And as a concept, I really liked that. And working 
with those group of women was fab because you know there were people older than me who had much more experience in the session world and girls just coming through and starting out and being really eager and keen and it was just a fun thing to do the song didn't get through and that's I don't know if that was a blessing or a curse really but <laughs> to actually have that opportunity to meet with that time with that group of people and and have that fun it was great I hmm. really enjoyed it but what is for you is for you and we didn't get through and it wasn't the right thing at that time that's why and I it's not something I bemoan or I'm like, no, oh I don't God, think, I never got I to think, do Eurovision. I think your career's doing all right without yeah, yeah. it. And I just, just say that. Um, now, you've done quite a lot at Hackney Empire, haven't you? Mm-hmm. You got married on the stage of Hackney yes, Empire. Yes, I did. I love that. Mm, I did. Um, so we're the congregation, well, not congregation, because it wasn't a church, no. but the, they sat in the stalls, did they? No, so we got married on the stage. Okay. Um, looking out onto the auditorium, which they lit beautifully and had two pools of light to represent both our dads because both our dads had passed. And then we had the party in the stalls, which meant that for the after party, we could just invite who we wanted because we didn't have to think about numbers and that. And we, you know, had bagels and donuts. And it was was cool. It was a really great day. But when we were thinking about where we were going to get married, we're, we're not quite church people and we didn't really want to do registry office. And, you know, the theatre is where we met and fell but in love. But were you able to get married in the theatre? I mean, was yeah, that... Yeah, but Hackney's got a licence. It's got, like, right, OK, yeah. perfect, yeah. So we were able to get married on stage with the registrar. They came across from Hackney Town Hall, which is just next door. And it was a fabulous day, an absolutely fabulous day. And, and seems very fitting for two theatricals to be married in the theatre that they met and fell in love with. Mm. So, yeah, it's cool. Brilliant. <laughs> um, Christmas, what's that whole... We're still here for Death of a Salesman. We're still here on the kind of Christmas off. schedule that's like Panto. So <laughs> we'll be here. We'll be ships in the night. Will you not... You got Christmas Day off. We'll get Christmas Day off. Who's cooking know. Christmas Sorry. lunch, I want to know? Um, it depends on where we'll be. We usually cook Christmas lunch. We usually have people over to us. We have the family over. God, that's um, good of you. My mm. mother-in-law might be moving, so if she's moving, then we'll probably do Christmas in her new place. Which would be lovely, a nice way to christen that. Yeah. yeah, cool. See, I always think you want to... Mind you, I don't like the cooking thing. I, I oh, negotiate it that we can go somewhere to the other bits of the family mm. for Christmas and then we don't have to do anything except entertain. Oh, no, I, we, lo- we I love mean, cooking. be entertaining. I don't mean... Entertaining. <laughs> yeah. I, don't mean I don't mean actually cook anything. <laughs> Just tell funny stories over lunch. Oh, lovely. <laughs> um, no, no, we no. love to cook. I oh. love all of that. Yeah, oh. that's, that's the nicest bit for us, Is the it? cooking and watching people eating and, you know... Seeing people fed and watered. And when do you go to Broadway? When's that happen? So we start rehearsals, I think it's the 4th of February. I know we start previewing sometime in March, but I can't remember the date. Oh, so quite early next year, really. Opening night is the 7th of April and I go through to the 1st of August. So I'm away for quite a fair time. Yeah, I know, but in New York, it's going to be yeah, and over the summer as well, which yeah, would be lovely. Yeah. So I think I get a bit of the cold snap at the top of the year. Yeah, then spring will come. Yeah, and, and then, it'll be gorgeous. Yeah, so I'll get, sort of, I'll get a few of the seasons. May, it'll be absolutely yeah. lovely, and you can walk the High Line and do mm. all that. Oh, she's she. When we're finished yeah. with this, she's going to tell me where I need to go. Aren't you, Alice? Right, <laughs> and you're going to tell me what the D stands for. I will um, do. Sharon D. Clark, thank you. Oh, absolute very, pleasure. Very much absolute for pleasure. talking to us. Take care. That was Wendell Pierce and Sharon D. Clark, both starring in Death of a Salesman. And if you enjoyed that podcast, well, why not download some of the others? You'll find them all at magic.co.uk forward slash podcast.